0: I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Dave Rakel about his book, The Compassionate Connection, The Healing Power of Empathy and Mindful Listening. And just wanted to introduce Dr. Rakel for uh, a moment and then get into uh, this, this book that is, is a wonderful discussion about healing and the, the physicians or the clinicians role in that process. And so. Dr. Rachel is a board-certified family physician. He's had uh, uh, quite a a long career in rural private practice and then did a residency fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. He uh, was the founder and director of the University of Wisconsin Integrative Medicine program uh, in the Department of Family Medicine. Uh, At the UW School of Medicine and Public Health and he has uh, a couple of years ago um, uh, uh, Took a position as professor and chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine in Albuquerque and he's uh, really written extensively he I know uh, has uh, Co-edited the textbook of family medicine with his father originally, and and is uh, now uh, in its ninth edition. He's uh, the editor in chief of PracticeUpdate.com for primary care. He has done a, a number of wonderful trials on uh, on SIBO effect at the University of Wisconsin. He uh, he also I I've had the good fortune of uh, hearing him speak in one of our IFM or actually a number of our IFM programs uh, And it's a real pleasure to to sit and talk with you Dave about the uh, your most recent book uh, the compassionate connection and I thought I'd start off by just asking you um, Kind of why did you think you needed to write this book? And what was what was that journey about? Hmm.
1: Yeah, thanks Thanks, Dan. Yeah, um, it's, you know, so much of society, I think, puts all the power on the thing. Uh, and in my experience in doing this for about 25 years is that the power is in the process. And and it's kind of human nature to want to put, give all the power to the drug or the supplement or the acupuncture needle. Uh, but what we're finding is that the expectancy, the how we make people feel, giving people uh, a a kind person to listen to their story, and then creating a plan towards a healthy outcome, all those things may be more powerful and also enhance whatever we prescribe, whatever that thing is, and I, I saw that time and time again, not only in my own practice, but also in observing other talented clinicians in that they realized that their tool was only a small part of the positive outcome that would result from their tool. And and the vector themselves in that special place, that special magic that happens between two individuals, uh, I've tremendously grown to respect that process that enhances the pill.
0: That's a wonderful introduction to the book, I think. And of course, the title of the book um, tells a lot about what's inside. And of course, it's about compassion and connection and communication skills. And I I thought it would be nice for you to just kind of overview what you think the keys are for you and that you've uh, illustrated in the book for building that kind of connection with a patient, what are the first things you think about when you see that patient or just what do you do?
1: Yeah, so much happens right and wrong in that first 20 seconds. Uh, You know, when we first meet someone, we start to judge. (laughs) That's what the mind does, right? Mm -hmm. You know, is this a kind person? Is this a busy, burnt out person? Uh, Is this person who will see my life as I live it? um, and it's not until we actually develop trust that that power starts to uh, become empowered. And one of my favorite math equations is that trust equals competency times intimacy divided by degree of risk. So. We always tell our medical students that you have to be credible before you can be incredible. (laughs) So in order to be credible, uh, you have to become competent. You have to learn your stuff. You have to understand the biomedical model. uh, And I would go beyond that. You need to understand the biomedical spiritual community model of, of a human being in order to become competent. Times intimacy. Times intimacy. They need to feel that you care about them. And remember, we, we, we remember how people make us feel, not what we tell them. And how we make people feel is the main thing that infiltrates the limbic system, and the limbic system stimulates every other part of the body because if we feel cared for, that stimulates our self-healing mechanism. So we have to build that trust. And in order to develop trust, that depends on the degree of risk. So if I have metastatic cancer, that heightens the importance of uh, uh, intimacy times competency, and it, it heightens the stress of the importance of both of those things. So uh, we have to know our stuff, and if you don't know your stuff, you should probably not be practicing or your patient should go see someone else, and you also should be able to be gifted in the art of intimacy and compassion, because if you're not good at that, your patient should probably go see someone else. So. It's a combination of those two things that builds trust. And without trust, then we cannot facilitate those healing mechanisms that come from the relationship between two people.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. It uh, reminds me, uh, I was watching some political debates last night, and they're all saying somewhat different things, but you're left with... Um, How did they make you feel as opposed to all of these specific uh, uh, programs or proposals that they had? So it it just reminded me of of reading your book and and what you said in your book
1: about that. I watched that debate, too, and you're exactly right. You know, you, you need to trust that they know what they're doing, and you need to feel that they'll have your best interest at heart, and that's what makes a good leader. Yeah. What are the other...
0: Uh, kinds of things that you think should be developed in to make somebody uh,
1: uh,
0: an empathetic listener, I should say.
1: Yeah, it's it's. Uh, some people think you can't teach it, but I believe you can. And um, what what creates a healing environment? Not only is the importance of facilitating a, a process within a health system that honors these key attributes, but it's also important for the clinician to explore this within themselves. And, you know, some people say, well, it's the health system and others say it's the individual and we all know it's a combination of the two. So if someone is really interested in being a good facilitator of health and healing, they have to do their own work. And and so the first step is uh, to recognize how their own mind is been conditioned, and this is that implicit or unconditional bias training, uh, that in order not to project your beliefs inappropriately on another human being, you have to self-reflect and understand how your mind has been conditioned so it doesn't get in the way. That's the the first step, and uh, everybody's biased. Bias isn't right or wrong, it just is the opportunity is for us to recognize our biases and once we recognize them they go from the unconscious to the consciousness and then we can use that to our advantage in service of another human being instead of being unconscious to how our beliefs might be unconsciously projected onto another human being which could cause harm and we see that all over the place so the first step is to recognize how your mind has been conditioned. The second step is really about mindfulness training. It's about being completely present with that other human being, and uh, mindfulness is is being present on purpose without judgment. And the the most difficult thing is that third step is how do we do this uh, without judgment? And then, uh, as you've mentioned, that listening piece is is so important that. And you know, I like to say we were given two ears and one mouth to be used in that proportion. And uh, we need to apply that to patients. And generally, if we sit there long enough, the patient will tell us what's wrong. They'll tell us the diagnosis and they'll tell us what's needed to treat it. And by far, whenever I'm confused, I always go back and listen more. And then the last step is how do you proceed towards action to create a plan towards health? and we write this down. We say, okay, we've developed some understanding by recognizing how my lenses have been conditioned. I first take my lenses off and I try and put your lenses on. So I take off my bias and I try and see life through your bias or your way of perceiving. And that gives me insight into you. And then in doing that, I'm completely present. I'm not multitasking. I give that other human being my full attention. And in doing so, I develop insight into what that person' best path towards health may be. And then we agree, we'd have a discussion, we say, okay, what are our next steps? And it might be one thing, it might be seven things. And actually, that's the art based in science that Osler said so many years ago, is we have a science that directs us, but the patient is the art. How do we communicate with that human being? to facilitate a health plan that's unique to their context. And the cool thing about all this, Dan, and you know this, I know you know this because you do it so well, uh, is that is not one-sided. When we do this well, healing goes both ways. And I truly believe this is a main ingredient to help us deal with burnout because people get burned out because we're being inauthentic. And if I don't have enough time to do this process, I'll order more things. I'll prescribe more drugs that might lead to polypharmacy because I'm not touching authenticity. And that burns us out when we don't touch authenticity. And this is an opportunity for two people to touch meaningful realness. if you will. Uh, It helps give both insight into how complex systems heal. And that's fun, and it's energizing, and it's so exciting to be a part of that, to be invited into that magical process, that magical space.
0: I don't uh, achieve that all the time, or probably much of the time, but when I do and have that interaction with the patient or somebody else, it is a uh, quite uh, it's quite a positive rush. And, and I think that's what you're talking about. You know you know when you've seen it or you know when you feel it. <laughs>
1: that's right. and And you're so right. but when you see it, when you open up to it, it gives you so much hope of the capacity of the human body to heal and if we never open up to it we never see it so it's not in our our reality we don't even believe it so we have to open up to it and it's not until we open up to it and give it our attention that we're able to see the beauty that you so beautifully described yes let's
0: uh, let me ha- ask you a couple of uh questions that have to do with things that block that. And one of the things that you talked about in the book is, uh, you know, uh, talking to an EMR and and how that undermines rapport. And, and uh, clearly we all know those things. How do you deal with that with an,
1: an EMR? They're not going away. No. They're not going away. And I look at it as a positive thing. You know, this is kind of the evolution of, of medicine is um, we're at that place now where we spend twice as much time looking at the computer than we do patients. And again, that's another source of burnout when we're looking at inanimate inanimate objects versus a real human being. Um, so we got to figure that out. And I think the exciting thing about artificial intelligence is it's, it's going to help us do more human-to-human work once we figure out how to use it most effectively. And I was talking to one of my faculty the other day, and, and she was saying that you know, the computer and the team, the MAs, the nurses, the pharmacists, we're getting so efficient at doing team-based interprofessional care that utilizes the, the technology that we have, the capacity of our technology, that we're actually not... Having those easy cases anymore that would kind of feed us, like that, um, you know, that simple rash that we could deal with in 30 seconds, but then gave us more time to really connect with our patient who we've known over time. Now those things are being taken care of by, you know, if if not artificial intelligence that it, is going to be able to read rashes probably better than humans in the future. Uh, now we're having to deal with more complexity, which doesn't give us that time out of regeneration uh, with that that earache that we stole to not only build our relationship with that person, but we also stole time to treat the depression. Now we are getting better at having patients deal with much more complicated uh, scenarios, which is what we were trained to do, but that gets heavier and heavier and heavier (laughs) so it's interesting to to kind of predict where this is going to go i think we're going to be staring at computers much less and we're not even going to have to stare at computers because it'll all be recorded it'll be coded by the computer just by recording what we're doing uh and we'll have much more face-to-face time Uh, but will we have that regeneration time what fulfills us and and um I think doing the face to face thing is is really exciting and if if I had to do integrative medicine or functional medicine consults all day boy no, that drain, that's a little draining so we need something to fill us up and and we call that flow something to spend at least 20 minute 20% of our time on and this came comes from Tate Shenafell who's done a lot of research, uh, he's out of Stanford now, he was at Mayo on uh, physician burnout, and, and he describes flow as a, uh, a curve where on um, the y-axis we have challenges, and on the x-axis we have our capabilities. And we need something in the middle of those two. challenges us, that helps us grow our capacity, our capabilities, or our talents, that excites us and energizes us. If we have more challenges than capabilities, then we get stressed. If we have more capabilities than challenges, then we get bored. So there's that middle aspect of flow. How can we protect time in our lives and the data shows that at least 20% of our time should be devoted to flow something that we're excited to do to wake that gets us excited to wake up in the morning and give our attention to that stimulates creativity and learning and increases our capacity and our skills. And I think that's another really important part of how we incorporate that into the practice of medicine so we're not just seeing the same thing over and over again. So that's what we're trying to do in academia, is how do we protect at least 20% of that faculty member's time for flow? And you know, when we are doing stuff we love, we're going to be more productive, and we're going to. Uh, get more grants, and we're going to have more creative ideas, and everybody wins when you're doing what you love. And uh, so uh, that was a little segue into some faculty development uh, ideas, but I think that's true for every human being. We need to be spending at least 20% of our time on flow, which is something that stimulates us, helps us grow, and challenges us, and that, that really fosters creativity.
0: Yeah, that's... Uh it seems like a great uh, concept. That, like many things, we have forgotten over the years, and we're, we're relearning at some level old things that we, at some level, have forgotten. As I said, and so I think that's uh, really important to re-remember those things. And now we have to schedule that into into a day. Yeah. I wanted you to talk, I could ask you a number of other questions about about that, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about empathy, which again, the book is about, and, and I've heard uh, sometimes empathy is divided up into cognitive empathy and emotional empathy and then em- empathic concern you know, that I, that it's, I'm not sure if it's, the highest but it, it seems like it's the deepest in terms of empathic concern is I care about you and can you comment on those uh, you know different parts of empathy and and where you think they fit in and uh, and also the, the other thing that I've uh, you know, heard uh, discussed is this the idea of the dark side of empathy and how you know using one can uh, a, a skilled person can use that in, in a manipulative way. And, and do you do you have any comments on on all of that? I've asked a long question. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> there's a lot there.
0: There um, a lot there.
1: So yeah, let me let me do as best I can um,
0: unpack. I think it. we
1: were. All, I, I'll try to unpack it. Uh, <laughs> the. Um, I think we would all agree that empathy is a really good thing. And um, empathy has uh, some key definitions. I see into you, I feel, I personally feel what you're going through, and we do something about it. So uh, many would argue that empathy is a stepping stone towards compassion. So it's hard to have compassion without empathy. and. Um, So, but the dark side is if I'm just empathetic without compassion, empathy by definition is I feel your suffering and I need to do something about it. So, there's action with empathy. That's different. That differs from sympathy, which is I feel your suffering and then I go home. I don't do anything about it. So, uh, that's sympathy. But empathy requires some sort of action. Um, And the dark side of that is that, you know, I might sit with a suffering human being, which we do every single day in this work, we all suffer. Uh, and and then I put that responsibility on my own shoulders that I need to do something about your suffering. We can't fix each other's suffering, but we can be there with them and help them get to a better place, letting them know they're not alone and that they're cared for. So empathy by definition and part of the reason there's this empathy distress or empathy fatigue or the dark side of empathy is that we put a lot of demands on the self uh, when we practice empathy because how often can we fix suffering we can't we can help people explore it and find the root cause of suffering and then try and transcend it which comes from the buddhist philosophy which i think is a beautiful teaching but if you feel like you can fix someone else's suffering and you're a failure, if you can't fix it, that's the dark side. And that's why I like to take the next step is I need to feel what you're going through. Uh, but then compassion, co-passion, two people suffering together, sees us as interconnected. And when I see us as isolated, two egos separated, then I feel like I have to fix you. That, that actually creates that dark side, uh, but when we see others as part of us or interconnected, then that feels good because when I, I help you, I help myself. And uh, I want to help you because we are interconnected And if, and if I can't create equality or serve the most underserved people in our society, then we're all going to suffer. And that's compassion. And then we want to help each other because it feels good for both of us. And that's the health and healing process that is so rewarding in the practice of medicine. If we're practicing compassion, I'm there trying to help another human being. And in the process, I help myself. And I help everything around me because everything is interconnected. And um, there's a lot of good science behind this. And I wouldn't get too caught up in the empathy versus compassion debate. And there actually is one which seems a little silly to me. Uh, But understanding how one feeds the other, I think, is really important. Yeah, I I
0: believe I I wrote down a quote from your book. It was uh, Compassion is the anecdote for
1: empathic
0: distress. I
1: think. That's exactly what we're talking about. Empathic distress or empathy fatigue. That's the, that's the challenge.
0: Mm-hmm. You uh, at another point in, in, in the chapter. You talk about the, the difference between uh, healing and healing as circular and uh, treatment as kind of linear. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit and, and how those two
1: things differ. Yeah, that's a big one. You know, I, I think the reason that we're, it's, it's so hard to get out of the biomedical culture and medicine is because it's we've oversimplified it. We've oversimplified the linear disease process. That And we've made a lot of wonderful discoveries that if you do this, you'll get this disease. And uh, that there are certain subunits that happen step by step that will result in that disease. But we all know that healing is much more circular and that Every human being has this unique balance of a biopsychosocial-spiritual aspect. And in order to really understand how to influence behavior, and remember, behavior, what we do is the main determinant of health, not what we take. But what we do, if we're going to influence health outcomes the most, we have to facilitate behavior change. And that requires us to go into that circular process that everybody lives in that requires us to bring that art into the science and the science will give us the guideline but if we're really doing health and healing we may agree on a health plan that's completely different than a scientific guideline because that human being that human being circular journey demands it and that's and that's hard to define and i would argue that that's why super generalists our society doesn't honor them as much because it's much more difficult to quantify than a surgical procedure which is, is much more linear both are important but humans value the easy to understand linear process and uh, but what we need particularly in a health system that now is 3.4 trillion dollars which is 20 percent almost of everybody's paycheck because we've overvalued a linear process and we pay a lot for the The easy black and white, and we don't honor the value based outcomes. But now we're starting to realize that if we're going to get what we pay for, we have to pay for what we want. And if health for our communities is what we want, we have to start paying for the circular. And that's why there's a 13 fold return on investment for primary care. The countries that invest most in primary care have a much lower. GDP uh, for their healthcare spending, and and so what we really need to heal the most expensive, least effective, most harmful healthcare system on the planet, that is America healthcare. We need more healing. We need more value. We need more of this circular process.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, what the the quote that comes to mind for me, and what your well, the quote is. Uh, everything that counts can't be necessarily be counted and and you're I think in your book and in your research uh, you're you're quantifying some of those things that are hard to to uh, to quantify they are they are part of that uh, that relationship as you talked about as you talked so eloquently about in the book and and now and, um, and you, and they, they, in fact, not everything can be quantified, but but there is a lot that we know, and we can go forward with that. So I think that's what your book really um, speaks to.
1: Yeah, that um, thanks, Dan. That, I mean, that's such an important piece. But I think we can quantify it if we give it our attention. We've given pathogenesis our attention, which is the cause of suffering or the cause of disease, and we've gotten really good at it. We haven't given health our attention, but we're starting to. And I guarantee you, if we give health our attention, we will have a lot of smart people understanding the complexity of that circular process, and we will start to be able to quantify it, and we will get better at it. But that to which we give attention grows. So. If we're going to improve the quality of our healthcare delivery system, we have to give salutogenesis, salute, salute health, the genesis or creation of health, our attention. So that becomes our new area of expertise. We call ourselves health systems, but we're really disease systems because we've given disease our focus we pay for the disease in the past people got paid more for waiting for the body to break and then trying to fix it because that was the economic model the economic model is changing so we can create now better expertise and health outcomes which is really the goal we want for our communities
0: yeah i agree and i think that's what
1: that's what you're doing with
0: that book or in that book in terms of uh the stories that you tell about your patient encounters, but um, more directly, the research that you cite that you and others have done around quantifying just those kinds of things. So I think I, I, I absolutely agree that those things can be quantified and should be quantified, because that's, that's how we're going to move forward. That's, how, that's in part how people are going to be convinced, or large payers are going
1: to be convinced, et cetera. That's right. Yeah. I like your qualifier in part. <laughs> 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 Culture is hard to change and we yeah. all know that it's yeah. going to take a while. Yes. Well,
0: uh, I, I really want to thank you for you know, taking the time and, and, uh, sitting down and talking about your book and, and talking obviously about, uh, the bigger picture that your book, uh, as I said, so eloquently uh, describes. And there's one other quote that I'll uh, that I don't think it was from you, but it's from the book. And and I think it sums up uh, a lot of what you were trying to say. And it was uh, uh, life is a grindstone, and whether it grinds us down or polishes us up depends on us. I forgot who said that, but it was I thought it was great, and it's it really is. Um, uh, well speaking to the, the theme of your book in terms of that compassionate uh, connection and, and how, how the things that you talk about and the things that you bring forward uh, uh, from your experience and from the research really is a, uh, an important, uh, maybe the most important aspects of, of healing and, uh, and, and improving people's health
1: yeah thanks dan you know mo- most of these quotes are recycled old wisdom and i don't claim any innovation <laughs> we're just recycling wisdom that's come before us and and, j- and just so everybody knows 100 percent of the proceeds from this book are being um uh, donated to medical education uh to try and help us support this process change in our medical culture
0: oh that's a wonderful way to end and thanks a lot dave thanks for your time
1: Thank you, Dan. Always a pleasure.